Well, today we are going to finish our series that we're calling His Story and Your Story. Eight weeks of the history of the world according to the Bible. So we started with creation, and today we're going to finish with revelation with the second coming of Christ. And so we've covered all the stuff in between in eight weeks, which of course means we've missed a lot of the Bible. So as I've been encouraging you through this whole series, I want to continue to encourage you, be a student of the word of God yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. It's something that's vitally important because then you'll be able to tell if what I'm saying is good or not, if it's in line with the word or not. You'll be able to discern things more effectively. And then also, uh, have you noticed if you've been a Christian for any length of time, Some similar dynamic has probably happened to you than what happened to me. When I first got saved, I first started going to church, found a church that was great. The worship was fantastic, and it was just a powerful time of experiencing the presence of God, and the sermons just seemed to hit me every week, and it was great. And then some years went by, and it just didn't quite do the same thing that it did in the early years. It was fine. It was good but it wasn't quite that rush, you know? And that's when us as believers start to go through a transition. And there's a transition that happens where when you come to church to receive, then as you mature, you come to church to give. You come to church to serve. And also, at about the same time, there's a shift that happens where... At the beginning, we're having great spiritual experiences with God in church services. Then it gets to be where the shift turns more towards your great spiritual experiences and your primary time of of receiving from God is going to be your personal devotional time. And so when you're reading the word of God for yourself and you're a mature believer, that's when you're more likely to have powerful experiences with God and a lot of spiritual growth. So I very much encourage you to read your Bible, especially if you're starting to hit that transition and you're in a place where you need to give out more than receive when you come to church. That's when personal devotions and personal Bible reading is so important for feeding your soul. So the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, this is something that we look forward to. What we've looked at in in the Bible so far is things in the past. And then last week we were in the present, but we were still looking at the past. We're looking at the early church in the scriptures. And now we get to look to the future. Now we get to be the people who have faith for what God has promised to do in the future. You know, I suppose it takes faith to look back and believe, but it takes more faith to look forward and believe. And so this is the part that we can do by faith is to trust in the return of Christ, that Jesus is coming back and that we have a window of opportunity, this day of salvation, when anyone can come in, where we do evangelism, where we expand the kingdom of God, but the day will come when that will end. And so we need to be ready for that. Let's look at some scriptures that talk about this. We'll begin in Acts chapter one. Starting in verse 9, this is where Jesus was talking to his disciples. He's been uh, resurrected now for quite a while, several days, you know, maybe 40 days-ish. And uh, he's talking to his disciples, and then he just sort of ascends to the Father. He floats up into the sky. And 
It was a very interesting moment, and here's what we, where we pick it up. Acts 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. So two angels came. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So the angels proclaim, okay, Jesus has left. He's gone up into the sky. He's going to come back on the clouds. He's going to return here. He's going to come back to this earth. Now, there will be a generation that will see the return of Christ. It isn't just about, you know, try to live a good life and, you know, sort of believe, and then you go to heaven. There will be a generation that will see Jesus return to this earth. He will come back. Now, I know he's definitely going to spend some time in the Middle East because there's a lot of stuff going on over there, but it doesn't really talk a whole lot about everything maybe he'll come to the United States too. You know, maybe he'll come over here. Wouldn't it be neat if Jesus was walking around New York City? And so we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to understand that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be different than the first time that he came here. What we celebrate at Christmas time is, you know, what they call the advent. It's the, it's the coming of Jesus the first time, the coming of the Messiah. When Jesus came the first time, he came to open the door to the kingdom of God through redemption. Jesus came to live a sinless life, to die on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world so that we could be redeemed. We could be bought back so that our penalty could be paid so that then we could be brought into the favor of God, the family of God and the justice of God and the love of God would both be satisfied. When Jesus comes the second time, he's not going to come to bring redemption. He's going to come to rule in power. So let's go to Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. This is a description of the second coming of Christ. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So in case we're wondering who this is, his robe is dipped in blood. He is the lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. This is Jesus, the word of God. Verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Different picture than a baby in a manger. A different situation. Jesus is coming to rule in power. When we get to our, our series, Christianity's Greatest Questions, one of the weeks we'll talk about the problem of evil. If God is so good and he made everything, how come it's so messed up? You know, that doesn't follow. Well, we see from this that God is angry about this as well. God is angry that this world is messed up and he's going to come and straighten it out. He's going to come and deal with things. So, this is a, it's a piece of the puzzle. We'll talk about that here in a few weeks. What's 
all of this mean to us? What this means is we need to be ready. Our job is to be ready. Jesus is coming. We need to be ready. Let me ask you this question. If you knew that Jesus was coming in about a year, what would you do? Would your life change? Would you do things differently? Would your ministry strategy be adjusted? What would you do if you knew we had about a year? I tell you, I would shift. I would adjust. You know, I've got a long-term strategy. I've got a short-term strategy too, but I've got a long-term strategy because I'm not sure when Jesus is coming back, but we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming, but we must be ready. We must have a sense of urgency. The assemblies of God, which Good Hope Church is part of the assemblies of God. The assemblies of God began with a meeting of 300 people in 1914. And there were missionaries and pastors and various people in this meeting. So I think they represented more than just 300 people. But there were 300 people that formed the assemblies of God in 1914. And by 2018, the assemblies of God had not just missionaries, but fellowships in 190 countries with 69 million members in the assemblies of God. Now, that's not, that's not too bad. From 300 to 69 million in a century. That's pretty decent growth. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's very significant. How did that happen? Well, what happened in the, the revivals of the early 1900s was they got a sense of urgency. They were fully convinced that Jesus was coming back. I think about half of the sermons were Jesus is coming back probably this week. Not exactly sure. Might be next week, but for sure three weeks from now, Jesus is definitely coming back. That was half of the sermons and the other half will repent for the kingdom of God is near. You know, that was what they did in those early days. They had a great sense of urgency. They were sure that Jesus was going to return. And so they sacrificed everything to get the message out to the world. But they also sacrificed a lot of wisdom because they were so much in urgency that they didn't plan for the future. A lot of times, from what I understand, they would rent buildings to have services in, but they were sure Jesus was coming back, so they had no plan for paying rent. They would just have meetings, and then they'd get kicked out of there because they didn't pay rent, and then they'd rent somewhere else, and they wouldn't pay rent and get kicked out of that. Well, that's a horrible long-term strategy, you know, because you get a very bad reputation. And you're seen as flaky and all this sort of thing. But if Jesus was coming back in a week, that would actually be fine, right? It would actually be fine. If, if I thought Jesus was coming back by five o'clock today, I'd preach real hard. <laughs> and we would have one powerful altar call right now. And then I would definitely wait for the 1045 service because I wouldn't want to miss them. And then I'm going to Walmart. You know what I mean? And I'm going to make a fool out of myself and try to get as many people saved as I can because it doesn't matter if people think I'm a goofball. Jesus is coming at five. doesn't matter. But if Jesus is coming in 15 years, then I need to have some wisdom. I need to show that I understand how things work and know how to live life and these sorts of things. And so the question I've got is how do we recapture that urgency, but keep wisdom at the same time. 
Because it seems to me that there's a lot of wisdom in there. Now we're teaching the young pastors, save for retirement, that sort of thing. And never used to teach them that before because Jesus was coming back. And then I got to watch some of, some of the people a generation older than me die in obscurity and poverty because they had nothing. And, uh, you know, they gave their lives for the gospel. And that's cool. But it's hard to watch them die in poverty and just in absolute lack and loneliness. That's just harsh, but they, they were sure Jesus was coming. So they missed out on some wisdom, but now we've got all this wisdom. You can go to a conference to learn best practices on anything. And yet the urgency doesn't seem to be there. That same urgency has kind of slipped away. There's some complacency in there. So how do we keep the urgency, but also have wisdom and not live self-destructive lives but instead live life-giving, you know, abundant life-type lives while we keep the urgency to spread the gospel and to bring people into the kingdom. I'll let you sort that out personally. Where's the line between urgency and wisdom? But I implore you to grab hold of both of those, urgency and wisdom. Today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks about a whole bunch of end times things. He talks about uh, lots of different things that have to do with his return. And then in chapter 25, it's basically what I consider eschatology for dummies. So eschatology is the study of end times things, the return of Christ and the things associated with that uh, time in history. And there are a lot of people who aren't going to understand everything about Matthew 24. And I would include myself in that group. You know, I've of course studied end times things, but I've not had that sense of like, I know exactly what's going to happen. I've got this one figured out. I just look at it and I'm like, yeah, something's going to happen. And I'm not a hundred percent exactly sure what that's going to be. And so that's why I really like Matthew chapter 25, because it's eschatology for dummies. It's here's what you do if you're just not 100% focused on all of those things and a super brilliant human being. How do we make sense of this if you're just a normal person? So that's chapter 25. But first, I want to read chapter 24. I just want you to just close your eyes or do what you need to do to focus on this. This is Jesus teaching his disciples. It's one conversation, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. One conversation. We'll read 24, hit a couple high points, and then talk about Matthew 25 without reading it. So here we go. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. 
Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, here he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather." Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in those days, before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 24. So there's some deep stuff in that chapter. There's some things that are confusing and hard to understand. I don't know that the order is in chronological order of the things that are described. There are many other passages in the scriptures that talk about end times things, and some of them kind of seem to lean different directions and that sort of a deal. But let's just look at a few of the highlights of this chapter quickly. The first thing is the church seems to be in a bit of a shambles. Let's go to Matthew 24, starting in verse 10. It says, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So these are people that are in the faith that are believers, but they're betraying and hating each other and turning away from the faith. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So there'll be wrong teaching. It's going to be just a lot of confusion. seems like the church is going to be in a pretty rough place because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold. Now, the context here is inside of the the Christian world. So I think it's it's the increase of wickedness in the church. It's the failure of the church to be successful in bringing the love of God to people and to love one another. And that's going to cause the love of people to grow cold. If you ever had a bad church experience and then that caused something to die on the inside of you, that's what this is talking about. And then verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So we're We're looking at a rough environment, especially a rough Christian environment, and that's going to cause people to fall away. But if you stick it out, if you last, that's the one who will be saved. There is an antichrist. Verse 15, verse 15 says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So there's this abomination of desolation. That's, that's powerful words. There's going to be some people involved here that are causing lots of problems. This is going to happen over in Jerusalem. It's going to be a big mess. There's going to be a great tribulation. Verse 21. Look at what verse 21 says. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So let's just put it in context. Noah's flood already happened. The Holocaust already happened. The great tribulation is going to be rough. There's the return of Christ. Verse 30. Verse 30 is pretty powerful stuff. Then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples in the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Why will the nations mourn when they see Jesus coming on the clouds? Because they're not ready because they realize that that what they were expecting to happen didn't happen, but something else is going on. And they know that God has shown up and that things are going to change. And so if you're not ready, it's a very bad place to be. But how many people know you can be ready for the return of Christ and you can be excited on that day. It can be something that you, you are like, Oh, finally, you know, and not because your credit card debt has gotten out of control, but you can be in a place 
where you are serving the Lord and you are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Then there's the rapture. 40 and 41 seem to indicate the rapture. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. And then people will be called to account. This will be the ending of the year of the Lord's favor from Luke chapter 4. It will be the closing of the day of salvation and it will bring the next day, which is the day of judgment. It will be the day where men and women must give an account. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So be ready because you don't know when it's going to come. It could go well, it could go poorly. Verse 46, it could go well. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. So it can be good for you. Or verse 51, Very bad. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is someone who is to be a servant of God. They failed to do so. They are assigned a place with the hypocrites. So that's a lot of stuff. We're barely scratching the surface on this topic, but a whole bunch of things are going to happen. And you know, you look at all the different people who are experts in this area and they all seem to disagree with each other. And so Finding the exact specific ways that all of this is going to happen, I think, is beyond me. If you can figure it out, hallelujah. But I don't think I can. But I can know this. Jesus is coming, and a whole lot of stuff is going to happen. So I better be ready. And so that's why I really like Matthew chapter 25, because it's really simple. I like stuff that's really, really simple. My eschatology includes something that I learned in wrestling years ago. So I was a wrestler. I grew up as a wrestler in school. It was very enjoyable. Wrestled in college, had a great time. And there's the, the best grip is very important to learn in wrestling. And that's where you put your, your thumbs in and just make little hooks with your hands, turn your palms together and grab. That's the best grip. And here's my, my basic eschatology is I'm just going to grab Jesus around the ankles as hard as I can. And then when the dust settles, I'll be in the right place. You know, that's my plan. My plan is not to figure it all out. Some people are real good at that stuff. Hallelujah for that. They explain it to me. I don't remember it anyway. I'm going to grab Jesus around the ankles as hard as I can. And Matthew chapter 25 describes three important aspects of hanging on to Jesus as hard as you can. There are three parables in Matthew chapter 25. We don't have time to read all of those, but I encourage you to read Matthew chapter 25. But this is the simple answer, you know, eschatology for dummies. How do you be ready? How do you keep watch? What do you do? The first parable is the parable of the 10 virgins. And this is about five wise and five foolish virgins who are coming to a a wedding feast and Back then, having a lamp with oil in it that was lit was very important. And I'm not part of that culture. None of us are, but it was important. It was apparently normal for a bunch of people to come to these things. And you could get in if you had a lamp that had oil and was lit. And the, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. All 10 of the virgins prepared. They had lamps with oil. All 10 of them fell asleep. But five of them had extra oil and five of them did not. The five that had extra oil were planning for the long term. They were able to get into the banquet. The other five were shut out. 
So the moral of that story is be ready for the long haul. This will take longer than you think. This will be a longer battle. You will get fatigued. It will be, it will be hard. Think of it. It's 2000 years later and Jesus hasn't returned. People are waiting and waiting and anticipating. And Jesus is saying, don't be ready for the five minute battle. Be ready for a lifetime long battle. Last for the long haul. Don't quit along the way. That's the purpose of the parable of the 10 virgins. Then there's the parable of the talents. Another parable that Jesus tells. And this is one where a master is going away. So he entrusts his money with three of his servants. He gives five talents of money to one, two talents of money to another, and one talent to a third. He goes away. He's gone for a long time. They put their money to work. The one with the five earns five more. So he's got 10. The one with the two earns two more. He's got four. The one with the one buries his talent, doesn't steal it. He doesn't do anything with it. He just keeps it safe and returns it to his master. When his master comes home, the master's super excited about the guy with the 10. He's super excited about the guy with the four, but the guy with the one who did not steal the talent. He just didn't use it to build up what the master had given him. He just kept it for himself safe and returned it to the master. He's like, Hey, what are you doing? You didn't do anything. You didn't even try. You didn't even put it on deposit. And then he casts that, that servant out. You know, that's the weeping and gnashing of teeth deal. It's, it's that person is not accepted. And so what's the, what's the message of the parable of the talents? It's simply this. Carry the baton. You know, do your part. Do your part for the kingdom of God. He expects us to be productive for his kingdom, to bear fruit for his kingdom. If we refuse to serve the Lord, if we refuse to carry the baton and to bring light to those who are in darkness, to bring freedom for the oppressed and the prisoner, we refuse to bring the good news. We refuse to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. If we refuse to do our part in the kingdom of God, then that's like the one who buried the talent. And that's a dangerous place to be. So God expects us as we're being ready for his return to be ready for the long haul and to be productive as we're waiting. And then the third parable is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus describes, you know, his return and separating out the people, the sheep from the goats and the sheep. He'll say, Hey, thanks for helping me out. I was in prison. You helped me. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. You know, thanks for helping me out. They'll be like, when did we do that? And they're like, whatever you did for one of the least of these you did for me. And he welcomes them in. And then he says to the goats, Hey, you didn't help me out. You didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't help me. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. And they're like, when did we not do that? And he's like, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. And so he casts them out. And so what's the message there? The message there is we got to love people through the process too. We got to care about people. We got to take care of people. We got to love one another. It's not enough to know the truth. We have to act on the truth and we have to love people. This is those three things from those three parables are how we grab onto Jesus as hard as we can. We prepare for the long haul. We put our talent to work. That means that we be productive for the kingdom of God. And then we got to treat people right. We got to love people. You know, it's possible to study end times events and bury your talent and hate people. That's not going to work out real well. That's what the Pharisees did. They studied the scriptures diligently, but they missed God. Go ahead, study the scriptures. That's good. But don't forget to last for the long haul, 
to put yourself into a place of serving in the kingdom of God and to love people, especially the least of these, because Jesus will take that personally. I want to read a section from Hebrews chapter 10. This really kind of reinforces everything that we've talked about. Jesus is coming back and we need to keep watch. We need to be ready. We need to hang on to the Lord as hard as we can while we're here. We need to persevere. We need to love God by continuing his work. And we need to love people, even the least of these. I don't think it's going to be Thursday that Jesus returns. I don't think it's going to be five o'clock today. But I tell you what, it could be. It could be that we are the generation. It could be. Why not us? So many prophecies are coming to pass. So many things are happening. You know, Israel is back as a country. The temple could be rebuilt. The increase of knowledge is amazing. All these things that are happening in line with the scriptures, the sustainability isn't there for the earth. Jesus could come back. We need to have an urgency, but we need to walk in wisdom at the same time. Let's trust God to give us that wisdom, but let's pledge our hearts to him fresh and new, knowing that he is faithful. He won't leave us or forsake us. And if we hang on to him, he will make sure that the day of his return is a good day for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great plan for history. Thank you, Lord, that you have a place for each one of us inside of your plan. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, your kindness, your redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made willingly so that we could be free. You show your incredible love for us that while we were still sinners, you died for us. So we give you thanks and we remember what you've done and we will not forget. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and mercy that's been poured out on us. Help us to believe in that grace and mercy, to be new creations in Christ, to walk in a new life. And Lord, help us to share that glorious good news with others as we live it out. Let us proclaim your goodness to this world. And Lord, help us to encourage each other as we know that day will come when you will return. So Lord, we eagerly anticipate that. We give you praise. We thank you for your love and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.